Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is an award-winning journalist, editor, educator, and author, Linda Villarosa. As a journalist, Linda's covered women's and African-American health issues in a wide range of publications, including The New York Times, O Magazine, Glamour, Women's Day, Health, and The Root. Twice, Linda was executive director of Essence magazine. She teaches reporting, writing, and black studies at the City College of New York in Harlem. She's published three books so far. Her first novel, Passing for Black, was nominated for a Lambda Literary Award in 2008. Well, today I want to talk to her about her newest book. It's called Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. It's a detailed account of racialized health disparities in the US, causing black people to live sicker and die quicker. Linda Villarosa, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. Uh, that quote, live sicker and die quicker, is absolutely horrific. But that is, in fact, what you say is happening. Yes, I, I think putting it like that makes it very stark. But what it means is that there has never been a time in American history where the health of Black people, the health outcomes, has been equal to that of white people and often other people of color. And that begins at birth with infant and maternal mortality and morbidity and ends with life expectancy where black folks used to live three and a half years fewer than white people. And because of the pandemic, it's now six years fewer. Now, for you, this was a, a sort of dawning realisation. I, I spoke earlier about you working on Essence magazine and uh, your thought about, and of course that was called the Black Woman's Bible. And at that time, you thought that perhaps it was about poverty or class. Why did that change? Well, I think that was the framework that most of us, even in even public health experts at the time, believed. And the idea was it's because of a lack of education, something we Black folks are doing wrong in our country, and not being educated, not understanding our health, not being proactive, rather than looking at the larger systemic issues that are against us and institutional issues. I think it changed for me once I went to public health school. I also began seeing that these disparities were far beyond what individuals could do even though we were made responsible and blamed for these issues. And then I started to see in my own family that things happened to family members, you know, unfortunate things in our current healthcare system. And I began to see that no, even when class and education are equal, Black people have a worse time with health outcomes and in the healthcare system itself. Mm. Your book, Body and Soul, The Black Woman's Guide to Physical Health and Emotional Wellbeing, was really the beginning of your exploration of all of this. It really was. And, and that was building on years as the health editor and then the executive editor of Essence magazine. And I think I was beating myself up a little bit about Body and Soul because it really is a self-help book. It came out in the early 90s and it's telling Black women, if you just do better, you'll be better. And then I looked at it again and I thought, well, it is political as well. Angela Davis wrote the foreword. But still, I wish now looking back at that, I thought we need to look at the institutional and societal issues that affect health, not just telling Black women, just do better and you'll be better. Mm. And of course, you've got personal experience, particularly of hospital treatment. Your father became terminally ill and that was not a pleasant, obviously, if he's dying, that's awful. But at the same time, there was discrimination, there was ill treatment. The hospital did, did not take care of you around that event. 
I was really shocked by that because my father was a trained scientist. He was a bacteriologist by training. He went into the hospital in the late 90s. I was in New York City. He was in Denver. My mother was in Denver and she called me home, said, you've got to come see what's going on with your father and you need to intervene with me. And we went to the hospital where he was. He had colon cancer and he was shackled to the bed. I mean, we call it restraints, but it looked like shackling to me. And he was a well-dressed, smart, college-educated Black man. So to see him with a dirty gown in disarray, being treated disrespectfully, was alarming. And it wasn't until my mother and I intervened, we showed the hospital folks pictures of him in his military uniform with his medals. We showed them pictures of him before his illness and said to them, if you explain things kindly and with respect, he won't be upset and angry. And my father should not have, we shouldn't have had to intervene that way and to say, look, we're middle-class, you have to treat him differently. Anyone should be treated with respect and be cared for in the healthcare setting. But that was the card we were able to pull. But of course, there is a long history of abuse and disrespect of the black body at the hands of medical providers and often in the name of science. Yes, and I was fortunate to be part of the New York Times magazines and New York Times' 1619 project in 2019. And that gave me the ability to look back. And for my book, I thought I will start with 1850 because that's when census data became very good in the United States. But then for the 1619 project, we were asked to look back further at the at 1619, the beginning of enslavement in America. And when I looked at how Black people were treated then, used in medical experimentation, assumed to have very high pain tolerance, which is impossible for anyone to have, and extremely low lung function, making, you know, justifying slavery. And then I was asked to trace the through line to today, and I could see a direct through line to today's healthcare. And that told me, wait a minute, this is very entrenched in our healthcare system and in our society, and I've got to bring this up and put it out in the open. Because, I mean, the history does go back to, for instance, uh, enslaved people having experiments done upon them and, and so on. And that was under the assumption that we didn't feel pain the same way. So in order to justify enslavement and all the cruel treatment that went with it, there was this at first, I was calling it an assumption, but really is a fallacy that was put forward by scientists, by doctors of the time, mostly Southern and many slaveholding, that would justify this kind of treatment and saying, well, Black people don't feel pain the same way, including emotional pain. So that's why it's okay to rip their children away from them, to harm people in front of them, and to harm them themselves. And when I saw that and realized, wait, this was entrenched in medical training and medical practice, and then the remnants of it remain in medical training, medical practice today. Let's turn now to look at reproductive rights and reproductive health. Of course, that's very much in, in the news at the moment. Where does that intersect with blackness? Well, if you look at, you know, recently we saw the end of Roe versus Wade, which is abortion rights. And with the end of that, the case that the Supreme Court case happened in the state of Mississippi. So if you look at Mississippi, Mississippi is the blackest state. It's the poorest state. It's also the state where infant mortality is extremely high, maternal mortality is extremely high, and child illness, poverty, and mortality is extremely high, if not the highest of all the states. 
So if reproductive rights were not even up to par before the case, now all abortion care is gone. And how I look at it is not, abortion isn't alone. Abortion is part of reproductive justice. And that is the right in this country to be able to have a child. That is the right to not have a child. And that is also the right, if you choose to have a child, to raise that child in a safe, healthy environment. So states like Mississippi and Alabama and the rest of the Southern United States where black people predominantly live, are the ones that have the fewest, that have the least reproductive justice. And that is unfair. So when something like, you know, Roe versus Wade ends, it strikes Black people hardest and worst. Mm. And I mean, it, there's also, I mean, I suppose what we hear in the UK called the postcode lottery, and it's about where you live matters. Yes, um, we call it zip code matters. And I started thinking about that. And that was one of the harder for me. It took me a minute to grasp that. And how I looked at it was through a personal lens. So in 2020, right before the pandemic started, I went to Chicago, where my mother is from. So she's from the south side of Chicago in a place called a neighborhood called Inglewood. In Inglewood, present day, people live to age 60. That's the life expectancy. Nine miles north, people live to age 90. It's the largest racial life expectancy gap in the country. My family, you know, I, I've made clear we were middle class. My mother got out of Chicago, but it was an important place. When I was growing up there, it was a place of plenty. It was a place of value. It was a beautiful place where a lot of people were striving to get ahead. I looked into it. Why would the life expectancy be so, so wide and people live to only age 60? My mother and I went back there and it looked terrible in 2020. It looked more like Mississippi, where she had come from. So I thought to myself, why would this have happened? I looked at the history of redlining, which is the government practice of devaluing communities, which happened to communities of color in the United States, began in 1930, lasted to 1970. Also, that community was subject to contract buying. That meant Black people could not buy a house outright. A house is the biggest form of wealth here. And so if you couldn't buy the house, you could only get it on contract. That meant you never really owned it. You were always in jeopardy of losing it if you missed a payment. So Black folks weren't able to sort of build wealth and wealth goes hand in hand with health. So the community, communities like that, and there were communities all over the country like Inglewood and Chicago, just lacked wealth and then lacked health. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this, of course, is to do with environmental concerns too. These places that are in this kind of poverty trap are the ones that are not being taken care of at state level in terms of the environment. You pose the question, which you then go on to answer, about why so few people of colour are involved in environmental movements. Well, it's interesting. I thought about that. And then I and now I think of it on two levels. I went to a conference, I guess that was also in 2020, where it was a giant environmental justice conference. And there were so few Black people there. And the Black people there had been in the fight for a really long time. So the environmental justice movement was started in the late 80s in America because of the what they called it, um, one person called it dumping in Dixie. So dumping in the South, in other words, building refineries near communities, landfills near communities, unhealthy, polluting sources near communities of color. 
So I thought about, I was like, why aren't more black people involved in this? Why does it look like more like a white movement? And I realized, and others too, that we have so many problems. It's hard if, you know, one of the problems is your communities being polluted. Another problem is your community is dangerous and there's gun violence. Another problem is there's not good hospital resources in your community or healthcare resources. It's hard to figure out an education. It's hard to figure out and to latch on to which issue to attack hardest. And so I'm forgiving of that, even though that early environmental justice movement in the late 80s was Black-led and Black-created. Uh, mm. I want to turn now to, to really an invisible crisis, I suppose, and, and that's emotional pain. I mean, you, you quote these stats that millions of African-Americans struggle with mental illness, yet only 33% of them receive mental health treatment each year. That's compared with the US average of 44% of all those who suffer. I mean, that's shocking. It is. And even though, you know, a lot of things happen to us as people of color, especially black people in America, we often don't get treatment. Part of the reason is because of a dearth of healthcare providers, mental health care providers that look like us or understand our issues and culture. So there is a avoidance of healthcare in general here, if you're black or brown, but also especially mental health care. And so I also think there's this idea in the community itself that we're supposed to be quote unquote strong and somebody who is suffering from emotional health is assumed to be weak. And so there is a little bit of avoidance on our part, both making sense, but also old school entrenched in our culture. And I think, you know, for myself, before my mother was a bookstore owner, she was a, a psychotherapist. So in my family, you know, all kinds of mental health care and emotional health care is very important. Mm. Do you think that another reason that some people of colour are not being treated for mental health issues is because of lacking education or knowledge of how to actually access those services? I usually try to flip that and that may be part of it, but I think a lot of it is because the services either don't exist or they're lacking. And so in other words, it looks like, oh, we're avoiding this system, but it's actually the system isn't that great or hasn't treated us that well. So it makes sense that we're avoiding it. The other thing that happens is in this country and other places, of course, our pain, our emotional pain, if it comes out as anger or if it comes out as disorganization, it looks like danger. And so rather than being treated and cared for, we're policed. And in my book, I tell the story of a young man who was, um, he hoped to be a chef in a restaurant and he, his parents were educated. His dad was a college administrator and he was suffering from bipolar disorder for a very long time. And his mother always said, Mm, I'm just so afraid that the police are going to hurt him because he looks dangerous. He doesn't look ill. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he was murdered by the police about 10 years ago. And I follow that family story to say sometimes our pain looks like danger. Mm. I mean, I wonder how you personally cope, given that, that you are exposing yourself to, to all of these stories, living these stories. You're black yourself. You've really looked very hard at these situations. There's death, illness, trauma. How do you stay sane? I am a happy person, which is strange for given when people meet me, they're like, oh, you're the person who writes about all that sad, hard stuff and spends all that time in really disadvantaged communities with people who are suffering. And then here I pop up and I'm pretty, you know, cheerful. So I think that weirdly I was made for this kind of work because it doesn't hurt my soul. 
I love what I do. I'm super interested. I'm committed, but I also am into joy. I play soccer. I'm like an older folk person who, who is really into physical exercise. I'm into fishing and the outdoors. I love my dog and my children and my family. And so I think that that's how I cope with it is by letting it get to my head and doing my best work but not letting it, you know, harm my body. Mm. And how can America cope with it? What is the solution? I think that things have changed in the last few years once the rest of the country discovered racism that made a big change in America. And we've seen institutions respond to racism by trying to do anti-racism and anti-implicit bias training. Hospitals trying to undergo this, uh, departments of health, to say, wait, we can't just quote unquote doctor our way out of this or use, throw money at the problem or just use technical innovations or clinical improvements. We have to dig into the fact that this system is broken in many ways, including that it's riddled with discrimination because that's how individuals are. And it's interesting because when I talk to people at first, just laying this all all out, especially when I'm talking to healthcare providers, they think I'm saying you're racist, which I'm never saying. I don't think this is an individual problem. I think it's a problem of this system that we have to attack on a systemic and institutional level without blame and judgment. And one of the things about the idea of weathering, it's the way a house weathers the storm. And that's how we as Black people weather our experience here. But a house also weathers the storm. It isn't just weathered by it, it weathers it, which means that if we approach these problems with kinship, with open-mindedness, with community, and with, if you will, love, that's how these, these problems can be solved. And do you think that there's been much change between the administrations? Is it better under Biden? Oh, for sure, because at least the problem is, you know, we're looking at the problem in reality under this administration, as opposed to, you know, causing more harm under the last administration and also ignoring the problem and and even insisting that it didn't didn't wasn't real. And that's really hard. It's, you know, triggering to be told that your experience doesn't matter. It's false. And that actually the opposite thing is happening. You're very privileged in a place where we know and by data and evidence that Black people have been suffering from discrimination since the big, since 1619, all the way to the present. And it's not even a question, including in the healthcare system. What do you hope will happen? I hope people will go into this open-minded and open-hearted. I am um, getting a lot of wonderful, I just got a couple of emails today with, you know, they always start out with, I'm a white person who read your book. And I really love that. So part of the reason for me writing it was to validate the experiences we as people of color, especially black people have had in, in living in America. The, the other reason is to open people's eyes in a way that they can feel. So that that's why I include personal narratives. That's why I put my own stories in the book. And that's why I, off, I also, have evidence and data and studies and research that bolsters up. So it's coming at it from two levels. So what I want is an eye-opening. I love when policy changes and when governments look at this and say, wait, we want to do better and we're going to make change. Hospitals say we need to have anti-racism and anti-bias training. Medical schools say we need to teach differently to create a different 
kind of doctor in the future, a different kind of nurse or midwife. And that's what I think is real progress. Yeah. Just before we go, and I know this was a long time ago, but I'd love just to have a, a quick look at your novel, Passing for Black. Oh, thank you for that. Well, I, my mother, and I struggled with me being a lesbian when I was in college um, many years ago. And I finally came out in the pages of Essence magazine with my mother. And so we both wrote stories about her from her perspective, me from my perspective, and then it ended up with us really having a kind of wonderful reconciliation. So I revisited a character that not unlike me in 2008, who was dealing, it's, you know, it's a, it's a novel of mother-daughter relationships, of love relationships, and of a young woman, Black woman, who is trying to figure out her sexuality. And that was what that novel was about. I'm going to say that I am, you know, I'm a journalist, and I'm probably better at that than I am as a novelist, but I really enjoyed the process. And I think it helped me loosen up as a writer so that my conversations in print are a little bit more open and it makes the scientific and medical information easier to understand. Linda, it's been absolutely delightful talking to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation is by Linda Villarosa. It's published by Doubleday and it's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to the producer Nora Hull and researcher Maya Renfer. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.